village where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery took less than two hours. So it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer, and the feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. Soon the women standing by their husbands began to call to their children. Welcome to another episode of The Fear of God, my favorite podcast, your favorite podcast. Uh, with you right now is Nathan Rouse, one of your co-hosts. Uh, typically with me is uh, a friend and longtime compatriot, Reed Lackey. Um, he said something about needing to go get some scratch-offs. He's not usually prone to that sort of habit or hobby or what have you, but, you know, to each their own. I, I, you know, I, I wish him well. I hope that's a fruitful use of a few bucks for him and, and maybe contributes to his local economy. Um, you know, as for until he gets back, did want to say, Hey to everybody. Thank you for being, uh, such wonderful listeners and readers as we know you are. Um, if you get a moment during this episode, at the end of this episode, before the next episode, when you have five spare minutes, go to our iTunes page, leave a rating, leave a review. Um, those are, those are how when eyes are on our page, um, we get sort of nice feelings created and potentially new listeners. Um, but if you will subscribe to our feed as well on iTunes, that's how <laughs> iTunes's magic algorithm elevates the capacity for more eyes to see us. Don't ask me how it works. Um, something about Cambridge Analytica and Russians. I don't know. Uh, Reed, you're back. You you got you came back, and uh. I hope you. Did you did you have the winning numbers of four eight fifteen sixteen twenty three forty two? Did you? Nope. Did you play those numbers? I play them every single no. time, and I have yet to win. Oceanic hasn't called me. I have yet to win. No, nope. no, it's, it's, no, it's t- no. Terrible luck. It's it's back. It's 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 time to go back to work at Mister Clucks, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm gonna be stuck with that chicken I mean, for life. Unfortunately, Trisha Tanaka is dead still. <laughs> um, so you know, there's. There is. This is awesome. Let's just keep going. <laughs> we have a listener named Tony Fegan who's just let me be like, yes, yes. Anyway, really? Yes. Tony, Tony. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, Tony. You're our people. The rest, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was a bunch of lost references. So, Reed, you're here. And yeah. And it is episode 85? 85. I can't believe it. Oh, 85. Man, creeping up on 100 episodes. Very, wow. I was very, I was very confident in that delivery. If you couldn't tell, I could. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know, last week we discussed a quiet place, um, very loudly. loudly. You know, so 
to 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 we we're lucky we did not we're lucky we were recording in our soundproof bunkers when we did that True. we worked really hard True. on those um you know but today we're discussing something very different we'll get to that in a minute but you know before we get there i just i just want to know reed what you're watching and i just want to know reed what you're reading hmm. and reed 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 i just i really want to know what what you listening to? What you want to know? What you listening to? What, what you watching? What? What you reading? What? What you listening to? Wow! The- <laughs> you doing a little, <laughs> dude? Trying to do a little like slam poetry thing with your with yeah. No, no. Oh my gosh, no. Um, he'll never die. No, he'll never die. No, no. We'll just keep raining him back just to axe him in the chest again. Yep. Um. So. Um, yep. <laughs> For for t- for today's session of watching, reading, listening to, I actually want to. So, I mean, it would be technically considered a watching, but uh, I want to let listeners know if they don't already about a service called Canopy. Have you heard of this? So this is I have um, not heard of Canopy. So, I don't know at all what you're about so to tell me. So Canopy is an app, and it is spelled K A N O P Y. It's a free app, and basically what Canopy is is it's a way that they the app. Designers have partnered with public libraries across America and possibly across the world, but I don't know if they're global. I know it's across America. Um, And you can basically, so you download the app, which is free, and then you look to see if your local public library supports, you know, is partnered up with Canopy. My local library is. And uh, when you look for your library, if your library is partnered up with Canopy, then you put in your library card, and it's an access to uh, like more than thirty thousand films, and not like crappy, junky, free public domain films. I mean, there are one or two on there that you'll see on frequent sites, but a lot of really high profile, sometimes hard to find films. They've got a few Criterion films on there. They've got some really great uh, selections: um, artsy films, classic cinema, um, and you can watch completely for free. No subscription. Uh, you can watch uh, just through your library card. You can watch up to 10 films per month. Um, and uh, so listeners who are trying to find uh, some films that maybe they don't, uh, they, they haven't heard of or some new explorations, they have a surprisingly robust horror section that was rather impressive, to be honest. And uh, it was completely for free. I mean, you just have to have a public library card uh, with a public library system that is supported with Canopy. Again, that's K-A-N-O-P-Y. And uh, yeah, I've only just recently stumbled across the service. I had heard about it a number of months ago, but my um, library at that time didn't didn't connect with it. Um, so recently now I've discovered that they do, and I'm very happy to to join that. And I just wanted to tell our listeners about it. It's almost a public service announcement of what you're watching yes. and listening to. So I appreciate the little F-O-G-P-S-A. <laughs> wow. Oh, you know, RSVP. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you you are... You are, you're an enriched fellow. You are. Yes, I feel that. You know, er, you're, you're a Renaissance man. You are erudite. (laughs) You, you engage in a level of cultural, you know, just awareness. Um, speaking of enriched. Thank you. (laughs) Erudite, cultural, sort of just bedrock foundational institutions a la your public library. What I have been watching lately is the new Queer Eye on Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) 
Oh, no, really. Uh, it's oh, I, 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 I turned my nose up at the original series, not because I was a judgmental jerk, but really because I'm just typically not a fan of reality TV. Oh, um, and, you know, I, I, I think at the time I just thought, what a gimmick. Um, but I'd seen a lot of really good buzz about this new iteration. Mm-hmm. And so, and my wife and I have, you know, difficulty sometimes finding just stuff we can both kind of plug into and gave it a shot. And dude, it's a lot of fun. Oh, really? It's a lot of fun. I haven't and, tried yeah, it. I'm I've lear- never seen either, I'm either learning, iteration. Yeah. I'm learning some new grooming tips. Um, oh, you know, I, I noticed the streaks in your hair. I'm like, yeah, good job. You've got you've got some some curl to your beard. It's 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 yeah, cute. Yeah, it's yeah, cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice. um, thank you, thank you. I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> At least someone did. Um, it's it's all it's all the Fab Five, brother. Um, I, I will say, like, we've watched three of them, and it's it's it it is kind of impressively like now. I think the one ding I would have against it is being not a usual fan of reality TV. I was unprepared for just how formulaic it is. I mean, it's very, oh really okay. You know, like you know, like the it's not like a competition show. It's it's just that sort of lifestyle type of thing where sure sure you know wh- whether it's an HGTV house makeover or in this case just gay guys making over. Uh, 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 well, actually, there is one gay guy they make up, make over, but you know, people just kind of trying to encourage people to come out of their shell and that sort of thing. So, yeah. a lot of the given beats in a, a particular episode might be similar, and thus a little redundant at times. Um, nonetheless, at least what we've watched so far, like you, you'll be, you'll—I dare say—you'll be moved to tears a little bit here. Oh, and there, and, really? And you'll, oh, you'll definitely, right. you'll definitely find some some good fun. Okay, um, with all the right. old the old queer eye on Netflix. Um, so yeah, that's that is. What I've been watching, reading, and listening to, and um, do you want to take us out, or how's your throat doing? Uh, my throat's still a, a little rough, but you know, in the slam poetry world, I can at least say, <laughs> Nathan, what you watching? What you what you what you what you what you reading? What you what you what you what you listening to? Listening to? Yeah, listening to? I can do that. La 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 la. Listening to? Wow. <laughs> so like like I I felt like I was invited to take us out, and then. <laughs> And then just like I caught the spirit. I caught the spirit, you're brother. Just, you're just you're just like read, read, you take it. Now give me the mic. Now give me the mic. <laughs> you know me so well. It's like, it's like, what you think about Reed? What you think about that, Reed? Because what I think is this. <laughs> you jerk. All right. Moving right along. What is this stupid thing we're talking about today, you dummy? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh okay. no in all seriousness so this is a very this is uh in addition to just being ribald um what so we're, we're not talking about a movie today everybody um in right. the event you saw your feed and you're like you know are they talking about a pearl jam song um <laughs> are they talking about what early you know participated in and that season of lost um talk <laughs> read fill us in on what we're talking about and why it held valued to you to talk sure about sure so um you but know. really before you do that let me tell the people what we're talking about and <laughs> listeners play a drinking game with how many times that gonna that bit is gonna get called out through the remainder of the episode um yeah. no so seriously like uh i've referenced this a few times previously over the course of the show i've said that there was a list when the when fear of god was first being conceived and conceptualized 
um, there was a list that I had made of some items that I knew like, oh, this would be a good chance to talk about this piece of material. This would be a good chance to talk about this piece of material. And, um, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to fully be through uh, that list entirely. But on that list, on that initial sort of um, first pass at what episodes might be, uh, was The Lottery, a short story by Shirley Jackson. Um, the the legendary, I'll call her, uh, author of a numerous, uh, she, she authored six books, um, and I think somewhere in the neighborhood of north of 200 short stories, um, most of them in the horror slash thriller or, um, you know, haunted mystery kind of, kind of genre, um, but unquestionably the most famous of which, of the short stories at least, is uh, The Lottery. So I wanted to, to tag in, uh, we, we've been getting a little literary this year, you know, like we had J.R. Forresteros on a couple of weeks ago to talk about, you know, his his book. Um, I feel like we've uh, we've got a couple of things in the pipeline. Uh, stay tuned, listeners, of some other pieces of written material that might be uh, of some interest to people. So, so yeah, I just figured it would be a good time to tag in and and do another short story. And uh, I believe. Yeah, I'm pretty confident that this is the first time we've covered a short story by a female author, which uh, which I'm really uh, happy about. But I want to know, like, before we dive into the particulars of it, have you have you ever read this short story before? What was your history with it prior to my saying or suggesting that we cover it at this time period? You know, I am not certain that I had read it, but I am relatively certain, age being what it is and Nathan's uh, well-established fuzzy memory even more so, but I'm pretty certain that I am, I was familiar with this piece of work as a, like a one act play, um, from like high oh, school or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and doing a little reading on the material, it has had numerous adaptations. Yes. Um, you know, of, of varying media. Yeah. So yeah, I knew I didn't, I would not have been able to, cite the beats and in fact when i was reading it for the show i didn't remember exactly i didn't remember where it ended in other words like i knew it was about it was the nonchalance of a stoning in a right small small village um but i couldn't remember if the story ended with the actual stoning or not you know and so oh i see okay um, yes so so it was was kind of fun kind of fun to read it with that limited awareness of what i was getting into but but yeah was was aware of the story was familiar with it just had not I, i can't recall if i read this but it seems likely uh but I don't know. It is frequently studied in high school. Uh, I believe possibly even in junior high because it's general, uh, like thematically and subject wise, it's pretty mature. But um, in its in its general rhythms and and literary style, um, I think it would fit pretty well in like a junior high, uh, maybe even an upper grade school level type of story. Sixth grade is probably the youngest that it would have been. But uh, yeah, it's frequently studied in in. Uh, school and collegiate levels um, as an example of the one of the quintessential American short stories. Um, it's very, very effective. It was first published in The New Yorker in like 1948. My, my understanding, when it was first published, it was published to critical exaltation and popular derision that like the, the people just wrote letter after letter after letter uh, shaming the New Yorker, shaming Shirley Jackson. They wrote her hate mail. Uh, even her own mom and dad were like, we hate that story that you just published in the New Yorker. Like, th- why, why are you still a writer? I don't know if they said that, but like, it was very, uh, well, they, the actual, the actual, uh, 
Per- permit me. Go. Uh, oh, yeah, go right Mr. ahead. Lackey, to, um, to, to sensitively and politely uh, rest the mic for a momentary <laughs> bit of trivial bidding here. Um, <laughs> what trivial bits you got, Rick? Because um, here's mine. <laughs> <laughs> the, the quote from Jackson herself is that of the 300-odd letters that I received that summer, I can count only 13 that spoke kindly to me, and they Dang. were mostly from friends. Even my mother scolded me. Dad and I did not care at all for your story in The New Yorker, she wrote sternly. It does seem, dear, that this gloomy kind of story is what all you young people think about these days. Why don't you write something to cheer people up? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Which sounds like, honestly, that does sound like a mom, doesn't it? Why don't you do something fun? Why don't you? Why are you? Yeah, yeah. Why aren't you more like your sister? Yeah. Why do you make a podcast about horror movies? Why don't you do something? (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you do real ministry? Who listens to that claptrap, that demon stuff anyway, Reed? Oh my gosh. When are you going to grow up? Oh my gosh, that is hysterical. That is so hysterical. So, uh, So, yeah, I mean, like, I sympathize because I feel like structurally. I mean, I feel like this story is brilliant. It packs such a powerful punch. I wonder, and you can uh, extrapolate on your experience of it a little bit, I wonder what it would be like. Like, I feel bad sometimes when I encountered this short story, I had no idea uh, what the conceit was, had never heard of it before. Again, I encountered it in school, so reading the story, it really packed a punch with me. I feel like there's certain cultural touch points like you know, my viewing of Psycho at six years old, there's certain things that I just encountered at a time where they were unspoiled for me. I did not know about them uh, before coming to them. And so I feel like, in my experience, the impact was much greater on me. But I would be curious to know, like, you already knew the conceit of a... And and for listeners who don't know, basically, uh, I'll summarize the story real bit, real quick, and then I'll invite you to talk a little bit about it. I have a couple of direct questions for you. But the premise of the story is it takes place in uh, an undisclosed time in an undisclosed town, but it's, uh, you know, early, uh, early 20th century America. Um, and the townspeople, uh, the townspeople number uh, 300, and they all gather together every June 27th for a lottery. And so the heads of the household draw out and you don't discover there's plenty of people talking about the tradition of the lottery and the importance of the lottery and uh, how some towns have decided to kind of do away with the lottery. They feel like it's outdated and that's dismissed by most of the characters in the story as like, oh, that's just young people uh, who have no respect for tradition and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, when the lottery is finally drawn and it lands on this one particular family, the wife in this family begins to pitch a fit. Um, and she's like, it's not fair. You didn't give him enough time to draw out, you know, to pick the paper he wanted. You rushed him. It's not fair. It's not fair. And then each of them have to draw out uh, another uh, piece of paper. And the person it finally lands on is that is that wife, that mother. And uh, and so then that's when you discover that, uh, yeah, the the winner of the lottery gets stoned to death. That is the um, that's the the story entire. <laughs> uh, so I've just spoiled the entire story for you. Um, and I believe without warning listeners that I was going to do that. But <laughs> it's um, pretty short. I think they'll be okay. but it, it, it is pretty brief. It probably t- will take you enough time to read it as it will to listen to my summary of it. 
But um, I'm curious, like knowing certain touch points about it, what like did that? Do you feel like that pulled the punch on the story, or do you feel like the story was still effective enough for you, uh, having you know having some degree of knowledge of what the conceit of the story was? Um, I think that. I mean, no doubt if, if you could somehow scrub your brain of, of so much cult, so much, uh, American cultural literary influence, uh, that's out there. Like it's, it's really hard to have no idea about this story. I think. Sure. If, sure. If no, I understand. Yeah. Had, had, and, and, and so, yeah, I, I mean, it's 70 years old though, this though, year, though, 70 years Right, old. right, right. And, and though it is interesting to reflect and to ponder i would not be able to give you the specifics but i do think it's production as a piece of theater i remember maybe having some like interesting response to Uh, i think what i liked i think what i liked about the reading of it though this time is even knowing it you're just paying a lot more attention to you know it's kind of like that experience of watching the sixth sense if you don't know the end i won't spoil it here if you somehow (laughs) avoided all of our talk about it previously and, and culture of the last 19 years. Um, oh my gosh, that's just, crazy. I don't want to think about it. Um, I know, I know, <laughs> but, but you know, it's, it's one thing to watch that movie and not know the end. It's another thing to rewatch that movie, know the end and just have a new kind of affection and sort of conscientiousness towards the proceedings. You sure. Know? So no, I, think, I agree. <clears throat> I think that's, what's interesting uh, uh, about reading this piece of literature and then what's scary to me, and you, you, you actually referenced this a minute ago as it taking place in sort of anywhere. I, I'm using that word. I don't know if that's exactly what you use, but the implication being it's just kind of meant as a anywhere, nowhere, everywhere idea. Reading the Wikipedia entry on it specifically, it, she actually is. It um, There are a few little bits that somehow correlate to her hometown. Oh, and so that right, was another right. one. Of, that was another one of the reasons, you know, she got some pushback on it. But sure. I think what's wild to me about it is you could read it. And while we don't live in an agricultural society anymore, it doesn't read as too anachronistic to where we are. Oh, I agree. Meaning and, and which, which I imagine is its staying power um, or contributes to its staying power. Just this. And well, that's, that's some thematic ideas, but, but yeah, I think it's a riveting piece of, It's so tight. It's so precise. And it does, I've often actually, not on an academic level, but on a consumeristic level, and I'll unpack that for a moment, but actually expressed a a lack of affection for the short story as a genre. Hmm. You know, much of what I've read as an adult short story wise would be Stephen King's works. And again, what I meant by consumer versus academic, like, I'll pick up a short story collection of Kings and there's this weird like psychology to, okay. You know, the feeling of reading a new book, getting a new piece of fiction. That's a book, especially if it's like a King piece of material and the sense of accomplishment that comes from actually finishing that. Work, oh yeah, of course. You know? Yeah. You're like, it's, especially it's, if it's, it's like so the much... stand, right? Yeah. Sure. Exactly. Sure. But, yeah. but even if it's just a normal one too, but the psychology of accomplishment and sort of, you know, personal, Oh, that's great. Um, whereas the short story, it's like you're getting back on the Ferris wheel every 30 pages, you yeah. know, and, and this, sure, this sure. sort of weird psychology that plays into it. Um, though it is neat for me as an, as, 
as an experience to read something separate from a larger work, like a collection like right, this, right. you re- you read it or I, I read it and was really just impressed. Like that is an economy of language that we don't utilize much. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, we're, sure. we're, we're so, we're so verbose, uh, uh, not just verbally, but, but in, in text, in print, we never shut up. Um, sure. We sure. need to find our quiet place. <laughs> you know yes exactly call back to last week um and so i just really appreciate the effectiveness the economy the ability to do a lot with a very little so, oh absolutely yeah. i don't and know the, if you're asking for all that no 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 that's exactly what I, and and in a second i'm gonna go ahead because i mean because of that economy because of its brevity um i don't see any reason why we can't just go ahead and start diving into theme i mean this thing this is sure. like six pages uh, basically right. basically all like leading up to a theme uh to an idea um but I definitely think, uh, and here's what I will say, and it's going to immediately sound uh, very dismissive, perhaps even a bit insulting. I in no way intend it to. Uh-oh. Um, Whoa. No, no, no. I, uh, but I think that the derision against the short story format, I would usually say to people like, well, you just haven't read the right short story writers because the people people who are good at it, the Shirley Jacksons, the Ray Bradburys, the John Cheevers, like the people who have really mastered that medium. And I mean, there's, you know, the the... The landmark for, uh, you know, early 20th century short story writing was Edgar Allan Poe, like nearly all right, of his right. canon is is short stories. Um, so the people who've really mastered it, even though he can get a bit um, uh, verbose himself, H.P. Lovecraft, there's lots of people who have a potency to that uh, that I think just a, an, a broadened exposure would bring you into sort of the joys of just that one little confined moment. There's uh, it's kind of like, you know, looking at a twilight zone or a black mirror or of, of the, in the visual world sure. uh, of looking at like, yeah, this is a really tight, concise little story. I actually don't want this to be any longer than it is. I just want it to be this thing. I think they have attempted. Oh no, no, I know they have. They've attempted to adapt this into film before. And I remember I saw, I, I, I want to say it was like, in the early 90s or mid 90s there was a made for tv like feature length adaptation of this and they had to pad so much in to you know sure. to sort of build the world of the story that it that it really sort of lost a lot of the impact that you just get from these six or seven pages depending on what print publication you're reading uh these six or seven pages just in out done and i think that's the again the potency the staying power i think the details she leaves out uh, like you alluded to, are part of what makes it so uh, lasting and so relatable to so many different time periods. Because there's no doubt that some of the things that that, that the story is scratching at um, are still frighteningly relevant today, as I'm sure we'll probably get into. But yeah, I think I think that's the thing. I love short stories. I love good, high quality short stories. Um, and and I think you just got to find the right the right people, the people who have really mastered the art form. Because there is a lot of like at, like with any art form, there's a lot of passive material that 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 is okay. It works fine. But uh, the really great ones, uh, once you stumble across them, they're yeah, they they leave an impact. Flannery O'Connor. I can't believe I didn't mention her. She's she's another master of the short form. Do you, do you? Would you like to tout your bona fides a little more? Uh, so then I also <laughs> love. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so um, I read, Nathan. I'm um, just. I read you, Nathan. You do. I get it. That is clear. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, um, <laughs> so, so, so yeah. Getting back to this story, I think there is something deeply, uh, obviously, very provocative about what this story is trying to say. 
Um, I think there's something very challenging about what the what the story is trying to say. And there's I mean, this story, because it has uh, entered the world of academia, um, has been dissected and studied to death. I don't know that we'll be able to avoid and or successfully you know, summarize all of the many different theories about what is going on in this short story and what it speaks to. Um, I can only speak to the couple of things that it resonates with in me, but being a first time reader of it. Uh, well, let me get your thought on this. One of the things this time around, and it's it's funny that this keeps coming up so much, but I thought again about our episode uh, in the early days of the podcast about witches um, and about, you know, the idea of pledging someone. Um, yes. of, of giving, yes. giving over, giving over pledged a is pleasure, pledged is pledged, giving over a scapegoat, um, to sort of gain benefit. Uh, I think there's almost a, a, a pagan, uh, kind of idea in it. One character, I think at one point has a line about, you know, the, the, the benefit of the crops to the, um, yep. To the lottery's, you know, outcome, and so which is a very sort of pagan idea. We also covered that or saw that in the Wicker Man um, lottery. Lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. Oh, see, yeah, yeah, you've got the you've got the line right there. Um, so you know, there's a, there's a little bit of that whole like, uh, you know, we we cut our losses, and I think that's what I'll start with this notion of acceptable loss, of acceptable uh, sacrifice. We sort of make this like uh, the character Old Man Warner in the in the story. You know, he's he's very proud. He's participated in I think it's seventy seven lotteries. Yeah, you know that yep. was his seventy seventh time, and clearly you know has never drawn the black spot. Obviously, but it's one of those things where I think about other in this in this short story, other neighboring towns have begun to do away with the lottery, perhaps for progressive reasons perhaps for moral reasons perhaps for just a, a passivity towards tradition and culture but they've decided to do away with the lottery and it is dismissed inside the story as them being you know oh just they're just anti-tradition or they're against tradition but something that i think jackson does very deliberately in the story is make you as the reader question what kind of quote unquote, that's the way it's always been. Do you just bypass and don't challenge because that's the way it's always been? And what kind of acceptable losses, what kind of things are you willing to just say, oh, well, yeah, that's just that's just kind of how it is. Just every June 27th, somebody's got to die so that we don't have crime, so that we don't have this, so that we don't have that. Some people just got to die. And the notion of of that being not only not only okay, but welcomed and uh, adhered to perennially in the context of this story that every single year they get together and willingly and openly as a community stone one of their members to death. I mean, that's that's a it's a horrendous and horrifying thought to think about the ways in which we ourselves offer up acceptable losses uh, for the sake of what we would consider the greater good, um, I know I'm dropping a heavy bomb like a half hour into the into the episode, but yeah, that's that's you know just one of many things that the story sort of makes me makes me ponder and makes me think about. Well, Lackey, um, you know it's a pack of crazy fools listening to the young folks. <laughs> Nothing's good enough for them. That's Next true. thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back to living in caves. 
Uh, Somebody clearly has the story up in front, (laughs) to quote it so adeptly. Nigh on my 77th lottery here. (laughs) Um, Actually, the quote earlier, actually, I had written that down. But um, I think there's a lot going on here, and it's remarkable that so shrift of text can yield so, you know, bloated of discussion potential. Sure, sure. I think, yeah, I mean, I think I was really struck by the by the echoes of of an unwillingness to sort of critique tradition you know and 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 ritual i mean just like i think i think one of the most harrowing aspects of this story to me is the absolute nonchalance of its participants right right you know the at the, at the very at the very end or, or right before, right before the very end, there's this, there's just this two line or two sentence bit that said, you know, the children had stones already mm. and someone gave, someone gave little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles. Oh, little Davy Hutchinson is the son of the woman who's about to get stoned. FYI. Yes. Oh yes. You know, the, the, I've been, I've been, you know, maybe I don't want to force connections where there aren't where they aren't there. But, you know, just that imagery of how an adult culture can, um, I'm hesitant to use the word arm, but that's what they do in the story. They arm their children into the adult's death cult, basically. Mm. You know, and and you can kind of run wild with that. But, it's funny thinking about a quiet place, which we talked about last week, and the the sort of call to hope in apocalypse. Right. This is a very. Um, it doesn't cause me to feel hopeless, but the story has a very hopeless core. You know yeah. that we are just going to keep repeating the rituals passed along to us without really challenging or questioning them. Um, and those rituals that are passed along to us kill us literally, um, our loved ones. And we, and we, we happily sort of grab our piece of paper to see if we have the spot just because that's what everyone does. Right. I don't know. I'm kind of, and something that really challenged me too, I was doing some external reading and the names of the characters really, this is where just literature can be so refined and 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 be such a lovely cultural artifact but the the next to last sentence is well the scene is tessie hutchinson has recognized she is the one to be stoned um she's yelling it isn't fair and it actually says she was in the center of a cleared space by now and she held her hands out desperately as the villagers moved in on her it isn't fair um a stone hit her on the side of the head old man Warner who throughout this little story continues to goad everyone into the, the ritual says, come on, come on everyone. And this is the sentence that really struck me it, with reference to the names. Steve Adams was in the front of the crowd of villagers with Mrs. Graves beside him. Now hear me. I stumbled upon this. This wasn't my, uh, I will give credit where it's due, but the juxtaposition that at the front of this circle is Adams, Adam, the first man, mm. uh, life, 
and Mrs. Graves, grave, yes. death, life and right. death, right. right there in front of this woman. And I was like, Dadgum, that's so good. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is it is just rich. I, I don't know what, you know, what what else do you have to sort of stir the pot, as it were? Sure. Well, OK, so I'll, I'll think about uh, I'll, I'll bring this up. Uh, one of the things that I'm really genuinely bothered by, I'm going to uh, I'm going to quote uh, Star Trek. Uh, but before I set it up, it's this notion that I think and we've talked about it recently, but I can't remember on what episode it was about how frustrated we can be with people who resign themselves to a grisly reality by saying that's just the way it is. You know, sure. that's just the, that's just the reality of it um, or that's the way it's always been. And I can remember thinking specifically about this notion of uh, I'm, I'm actively wanting to resist getting into political conversations out of sensitivity to the wide variety of, of our listenership. Here's what I will say that there are any number of that, that virtually every political issue is complicated and that there are good valid reasons for a variety of different nuanced perspectives or shades along the spectrum of perspectives. But one of the things that I think as a as a believer, if you are a believer, if you are a, a, a member of the body, a, a call yourself part of the kingdom of God, I think there is a real dangerous imperative when you begin to be okay with some people are going to are going to die. Like some people are just going to have to die. I think that I think that gets problematic. I think that gets difficult. Um, can you? Well, I, I, can I, if I can jump in there, I, I, I would invite. Not because I like to rouse the rabble, but I would invite some specificity there, and the re- mainly for clarity, so so that even I, as your co-host and 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 conversation partner, can understand what you're referring to, um, in context. But also, too, like it is, forgive the brief moment of passion. Like I, I respect and am encouraged by you as a person and friend and and orator's desire to not ostracize. To not ostracize, period, and 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 I think that's respectable and and appropriate and intent. Um, this is a political piece. It's a political piece well, it about is. Yes, what it about is. what happens when, in, in in your words, we we count the acceptable loss as fine in the name of mm, rights or tradition or ritual or the way it's always been or well, that's just how it is because the rigidity. Or the greater uh, the, good. That's just how it is. Yeah, or the greater good. The rigidity of those sorts of things disavow the the fluidity, the flexibility of of a risen Christ who who does not operate by the rules we want to impose upon him. So I say all that to simply say, what are you talking about, Reed? <laughs> <laughs> so so here's where. So I, I had mentioned that I was going to quote Star Trek, and here's there's a there's a Star Trek episode in which. If I'm remembering the context of the episode correctly, uh, poor little Wesley Crutcher, which is our, our our good friend Will Wheaton, who we've you know we've met a few times. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, I'm not kidding about us meeting him, but he's not. <laughs> um, but uh, so wow. so Wesley Wesley Crusher has uh, committed an infraction, a transgression on uh, this planet, and he's going to have to die. And and obviously that's the kind of the dilemma of the of the piece. But inside the episode. Picard, Captain Picard is having an exchange with Data, and 
Picard is putting his entire ship, the entire crew, at risk by fighting for and defending this one crewman. And uh, Data uh, asking, because he's a machine and he's trying to learn and understand these things, he asks, he said, would you choose one life over a thousand, sir? And Captain Picard answers back, I refuse to let arithmetic decide questions like that. And I thought that was a really... A powerful sentiment. And what I'm specifically talking about is I'm specifically talking about uh, listeners, uh, forgive me for the one-sidedness you're about to hear. I'll nuance it in a second. We can't risk letting all those people come in here because they're dangerous. So somebody's got to die. It's their problem. Somebody's got to die. You know, uh, we can't risk being unsafe or insecure, so we have to continue to, you know, follow the traditions, follow the rules. Uh, somebody's got to die in terms of uh, armament or politics or poverty or whatever it is. Take your pick. This attitude that, that people will occasionally adopt. And I will say this, and this is where I'll nuance it. I'm not even saying that you have to be the liberal stance on a particular issue like guns or immigration or anything like that. I'm not even saying that you have to adopt the liberal position. Uh, I'm saying that the, the, there, is a, there is a way in which the conservative position can absolutely be the kingdom position. But what I think it has to be challenged in your heart, in my heart, and in the conversation is that if you are a believer, you cannot let arithmetic or you cannot let uh, logistical mathematics determine whether or not you fight for the rights and lives of of the helpless, the poor, the the impoverished, the disadvantaged. Like there is an imperative for the believer, for the kingdom to reach out and say like, hey, this is not just a game of chance in which I get lucky enough to be born into a station where I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And these other people happened to have been born into a different station. And that's just unlucky. But that's also just not my problem. And I think that that is counter to kingdom living, I think that's counter to faithful living, and I think that attitude, when we adopt it, and when we say like, hey, this is just the lottery, this is the lottery of life, that you got born into this condition, and I got born into this condition, this is my 77th lottery, so it's not my problem, and I think that Again, I want to be very deliberate and very clear here because political issues are complicated. I'm not afraid to state my opinion, but political issues are complicated. You can hold conservative positions. You can hold liberal positions. You can hold centrist positions. You can be pro-gun. You can be anti-gun. You can be pro-immigration. You are, you know, you can be uh, build the wall. You can be whatever stance your conscience dictates that you uh, need to be. I think that as a believer and as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to have a certain impairment to choose life. Uh, you have to have a certain imperative, not impairment. Uh, a certain imperative to choose to fight for the lives of other people and to lay down your own in the process that if there is a life on the table, let it be yours. That is the painful and complicated call of the Christian is, as Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, the call of the Christian is to come and die. Christ bids us come and die. And uh, and I think that is one of the things that this short story challenges me about is I think we when we get comfortable and when we get safe and when we get secure then we suddenly start to view the others who are by chance, by lottery, in a less fortunate position than us, then we begin to view them as acceptable loss. Is that making more sense now? Is that specific? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah, and something you said a minute ago made me think this. As someone who people may hear and think, I am so liberal, you know, maybe I am on a certain spectrum, but like, I do so tire of you, you, you were articulating a minute ago, like, you know, you can have a conservative position and it be uh, thoughtful and mindful. You can have a liberal position and be thoughtful and mindful. I think what I struggle against in myself and what I struggle against in the world, as I observe the comings and goings of brothers and sisters is we will often, we will participate in the lottery and call it the gospel. Yes, I we agree wholeheartedly with that. We will we 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 will plug deep in to the ritual, the tradition, and call it faith. Mm-hmm. We will. Uh, I gosh, I saw something today. The, I, we we will plug into the language of a denomination and call it God. Yes. And I think that might be, to me, what you're scratching at, or at least what I would sort of articulate as the call and challenge that you, um, Richard, I, I want to say I referenced this. Maybe it was you and I just in conversation, but possibly it was on the, the podcast at some point. But Richard Rohr, Richard Rohr in the Bible for Normal People that I referenced with Forsteros with JR a couple of weeks ago on that podcast, he makes a lovely image that I've tried to keep at the forefront of my spirit and mind that gave me some really fruitful language for my own journey. And I think maybe for others as well, he, cause they were the, the hosts were asking about like, you know, poles on the spectrum, you know, like, like where, where sort of Christians tend to fall and blah, blah, blah. And he gave this really lovely illustration. He said, I, I, I kind of choose not to look at those categories he says what we talk about in his teachings is the image of the three boxes and those Mm. three boxes are order disorder and reorder and he said and and get mad at richard Rohr if if a listener doesn't like this language but because this is where it's from he says many of my conservative friends love to live in the order box it makes sense um, it is, it, it has rules and regulations and a certain code that you adhere to. He says, many of my liberal friends love to live in the disorder box, which isn't to suggest it's destructive or anarchistic or something like that, as much as it's just a bit more fan, you know, flight of fancy, you know, sort of maybe, maybe just, just, just sloppy or something. Uh, those, those are my quick pause. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it is it that and I didn't hear this piece, but is it that uh, that order is is more sort of logical and that disorder is more sort of emotive or or is it? Not no, quite? no, it's less. of No. Okay. Well, his his attributions are more. My conservative friends tend to fall in this box of order. My liber- it had less to do with like um, what those boxes mean. Necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Right, gotcha. uh, or it's, it's how they express themselves in the world. He says the, the, ch- the call from a faith perspective is is to move past both of those Mm. and to move into reorder. Like, what does it look like for you to, now that you've maybe acknowledged the shallowness of the order box and acknowledged then the chaos of the disorder box and how those two things don't yield eternal fruit. Now, what do you do? Well, now Mm. you're in the reorder box. And I think, I think that's something I've started to try to figure out 
by no means have I maybe even begun to solidify any of that, but it gave me sort of hope. I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense for me personally. I would say I lived in the order box, not so much from a political in terms of political ideology, but in terms of just the world made sense to me um, based on you know, certain, certain ideas and, and expressions. Um, well then life itself through some major curveballs and disorder began to reign and now sort of screw it all. You know, I'm just going to express myself how I want and blah, blah, blah. Well, now I'm hopefully maturing and moving into this notion of reorder. Okay. Well now what does it mean to set perhaps the childlikeness or childishness, I would say rather, uh, of those two boxes aside, as I start to re orient myself to what it means to be faithful in the world. And it's setting aside these rituals, these systems, such as the lottery, the story invokes, you know, you, you make a great point drawing out old man Warner. I've done this 77 times. Like, this is what it is. Come on, everybody. This is just how right. we do it. Right. Yes. You know, of, of setting aside those notions because, you know, the, the Jesus, I think you and I both would say we serve does not operate in those parameters. Right. Not just from a not just from a cynical screw the system kind of standpoint. I don't even mean just that. As in, like there there is no box to hold that. <laughs> mm, right. And and right. and and we. I, I don't know if I'm um, making much sense, but you know this is no, where sort of what I think all I'm trying to get to. You you are invoking some specific political touch points. Is I I think the Christian call, the Christ like call is to say, okay, well, that's how the quote-unquote conservative thinks, and that's how the quote-unquote liberal think. Okay, well, what would the self-giving love of Jesus make of these two ideas, and how do I find fruit in them? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, because the um, answer, as we would, as I think you and I would both agree, is that if you get, and, and you can see to a certain degree, you can see this take place in the Gospels, that you can see Pharisees approach him and try to trap him. Disciples... Uh, who love him and are following him, approach him and have, you know, misguided thinking in their questions. I think that if Jesus himself were approached by a very God-fearing, uh, Bible-loving, believed to be Christ-following conservative, approached Jesus and a liberal who believed that their version of the gospel was the, was the true version of the gospel, if both of them approached Jesus, I think both would be shocked and scandalized. By his answer, because I think that that's one of the things that Jesus continues to do is to remind each and every one of us, wherever we sit on the political or social spectrum, you're asking the wrong questions or you're pursuing the wrong sure, things. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and, and I think that's one thing when, you know, it, it's something that the lottery really brings up in me is this idea of you. So Shirley Jackson, essentially, by writing this story. She doesn't put anybody in the story to observe it. She just lets the she just lets the tradition play out how it has played out time immemorial. And you, the reader, are the observer. You are the outside right, observer. Right, right. You are right. the one who see, you're supposed to be shocked. You're when when the winner of this lottery is stoned to death, participating by their their own family, their husband, who presumably they love because they had five kids with them, and all of this stuff like when they are when they are destroyed, supposedly for the good of everybody else um, and for the sake of tradition and all this other stuff, you, the reader, are supposed to be scandalized. You're supposed to be shocked. And I think that's one thing that the story effectively does is cause you to to take a pause and to say, in what ways 
do the things that I just casually accept. The things that I just say like, sure. oh, well, this is the way it's always been. What ways might I be essentially uh, casting death upon someone else? Maybe even my neighbor, <laughs> maybe even you know, right, the, the, the right. person who um, who I know and, and presumably love. In what ways am I am I fostering and perpetuating death in the name of tradition, in the name of ritual, in the name of uh, of, of all manner of things? Because that is that is uh, I, I'm not beating up on. I'll just say it. I'm going to stop qualifying. Guys, I love you. Hear me. I'm tired and whatever. I'm just going to stop qualifying. Like, like that's that's a very pagan sort of way to go about it. We, we, when we talked about the Wicker Man, the, that, that is very much, at least in that film, and from what I understand of certain pagan expressions, is just like, oh, no, this is the sacrifice. This is what this is. We're sacrificing this, and then our crops are going to be fruitful next year. Um, so, so we're giving this up. And, uh, and, and, and from what I understand of contemporary to Bible times paganism, that was very much like that's, that's sort of the, nat- the nature of it. Nature itself in present times, like nature is not sentimental. Uh, there is a food chain and predators eat prey. And that's, you know, that's what it is. It's just, it, that is just the cycle that we live in. But the scandal of Christ coming into the midst of that saying like, no, you, you here uh, are going to reverse the the kingdom that says, hey, I am going to continue to preserve my life by taking others. Instead, the kingdom of God flips that upside down and says, you are going to foster life by laying down your own. That's mm, that's yeah. the reverse. Is like, no, instead of taking it to preserve yours, you are going to foster it by laying yours down. And I sure. think and I think too many times liberals and conservatives, people of all walks of life have a tendency to cite, like you said, uh, we play the lottery and call it the gospel. Hey, I, I'm just blessed, yeah. brother. I'm just blessed. I don't, right. I don't, I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. I don't know why God loves me more than you, but He must, because look at look at all the stuff I got, and look at all the right. the good things I got going on. We play the lottery and call it the gospel. And I know that Scripture says the Lord will have favor on whom He chooses. I'm not getting into all of the uh, of the. I'm not going to have a theological war of words here. I believe deeply that that God is no respecter of persons, and I believe that there is a certain degree of lotteryness to the world around us. And I believe that one of the things that the coming of Christ does is try to say like, Hey, that's the way the kingdoms of this world operate. That is not, that is not the way the kingdom whose builder and maker is God is intended to operate. It is not supposed to operate in those kind of paradigm dynamics. It heals and restores and gives and it sacrifices of itself and it lifts up. Exactly. And, and so I think that's the thing where we should all feel challenged um, whatever spectrum we're in to say like, hey, you know, because because believe me, there are some conversations to be had. Uh, we, we may uh, conservative listeners may feel a bit uh, put upon by some of the things that I've referenced. But believe me, there are some staples of liberalism that I could easily point to and be like, you are casually for the sake of a lottery or chance casting off life and casting and casting away life as it were. Uh, what I'm trying to say in all of that is simply that is we, if we as believers want to take seriously the gospel and take seriously the mission of Jesus, I believe we have to stop being okay with what we would deem as acceptable loss. And we have to start fostering, promoting, seeking, striving for, and believing in 
something that fosters life and encourages life and produces life rather than entrenches this culture of every June 27th, we sacrifice somebody to the whatever, you know, to the to the um, the pull of a sheet of paper used to be chips of wood. And now it's just these little cheap sheets of paper that blow away what haunting image blow away in the wind when it's all decided discarded done these life or death things forgotten done it's over and done with it is the the winds of change and the tides of time and they're gone and they're and they're finished and we as the kingdom cannot accept that we cannot abide by that we cannot be okay with saying this group over there they're just going to go because every human being who has ever sucked in breath from their mother's womb after being released is fearfully and wonderfully made and they have the, I believe, have the divine spark in them that is something that should be cherished and treasured and should be uh, adhered to. So, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, you, you've, you've invoked that phrase, acceptable loss, a couple of times. And, and I want to kind of marry that to JR's uh, poignant and prophetic language of the gospel of loss. And I think what's important mm. to distinguish about those two ideas is... I think in the economy of the kingdom, the only acceptable loss is your own, you know, like, Indeed. Uh, yeah. Um, Indeed. And, and the gospel of loss is to, is, is a call to humility, which is not necessarily humiliation though. Maybe, maybe, um, you know, but at, at, at minimum is a call to a pursuit of humility. And I think that's a great tragedy. We bear witness to daily, hourly, minute to minute that, we are far too content with a high volume of acceptable loss. Absolutely. Absolutely. As, as opposed to figuring out what a gospel of loss as it relates to ourselves in an effort to lift up others looks like. And that's hard. That's hard. That's really hard, you know, absolutely to sort out and figure out, but narrow is the path. And it'd be, if it were easy, everyone could do it. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and the Broadway, the easy way, leads to destruction the 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 scripture verse um i really wrestled with whether or not to bring in this scripture verse and i'm you know i'm just alienating all kinds of listeners in this conversation so i'm just going to go ahead and and and, and bring it in are you about Um, wait a minute are you about to bring up the stone the stoning passage from is it exodus in relation to the lottery you're about to back up the lottery (laughs) no 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 not quite not quite um no so um there's a passage of scripture it is terribly controversial, so I'm going to call it out, speak it into the light, so that it, it does not do any damage in that capacity here. It is a controversial passage of Scripture because it has been, it has been used by abusive people uh, for far too many years to foster and encourage anti-Semitism. But the passage of Scripture I'm thinking of specifically is from Matthew chapter 27. It is when Jesus uh, is brought by Pilate before the people and compared to Barabbas, and the people shout to crucify Jesus. And in verse 24 of Matthew 27, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Verse 25 says, all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, I want to make one statement because that passage of Scripture has been used and abused throughout history too many times to say that the 
the Jews are cursed people because that verse 25, they said his blood is on us and on our children. Um, I utterly reject that notion. That is a, a foolish mishandling of the scriptures. But uh, what this passage does speak to me about is the notion of how easy it is to passively dismiss sacrificing up what is good and holy and right um, for the sake of what appeals more to you in the moment. And Pilate himself is one of the most egregious in that passage because he washes his hands of it. He's basically like, this is not my problem. This is not my problem. This is your choice. This is your problem. And the other, the other big thing that's going on in this particular passage of scripture is exactly what we've been talking about, this gospel of loss. Like, what's happening in that moment, unbeknownst to the people who are saying, hey, uh, crucify him, give him over to us, is that Jesus is willingly laying down his life for them. Like, he's, he's doing it for them. Um, and one of the things that I find so difficult to accept about current trends in circles of faith, language of faith, trends of faith, whatever you want to say, and, and this is not all faith, um, but this is just sort of the more vocal and and I'll call them uh, fundamental varieties, is that so many people are just willing to say when they see the people that Jesus would have opened himself up for and and suffered and bled and died to save and to redeem, and they just, like Pilate, wash their hands of it. And they just say, like, oh, no, that's that's not... That's not my problem. And then the other people standing there thinking, well, no, this is right. This is good. So we'll take responsibility for it. Not realizing the travesties that they're invoking, the tragedies that they're continuing to foster and that they're continuing to allow take place in the society around them, in their neighborhoods. And the fact that, let me get real uh, specific about this, because some people are like, well, man, I don't hold people's life and death in my hands. And it's like, the fact that you would cast judgments on people because of their appearance, the fact that you would cast judgments on people because of their station or their poverty level, or the fact that you would cast judgments on people because of their attitude or whatever it is, the fact that you would size up a person and assess them and write them off and and not invest in trying to help them or see them come to uh, a place of wholeness, even in that moment. You have you have written them off and you've cast them off to uh, to whatever chance or whatever circumstances may bring to them. And I'm not saying you have to, you know, open wide your doors and take forty five thousand people in who are impoverished and desolate. Uh, You know, like we've often said on this show, you know, don't unnecessarily put yourself or your family at risk. But I think to a degree, there's a certain measure by which with our language and with our attitude, we do have to stop allowing ourselves to just accept the lottery, to just accept the chance nature of it. And instead, we have to engage it, confront it, and say, this needs to be better. This needs to be better than just those people drew the wrong card, and so they're not getting anywhere in life, and they're, and they're just going to be written off. We have to do better than that, and we have to fight for better than that. Whatever that looks like in your microcosmic state, whether that is you getting involved in your community programs or whether that is you um, helping with, uh, you know, volunteering at some shelters or something, or whether that is simply you having a different tone of conversation at the water cooler at work, you cannot continue to be okay with, oh, yeah, sucks for them. Um, Like, that's that's just not a posture that I believe Jesus Christ would be okay with. And, um, yeah, I've, I've probably preached enough on this 
<laughs> it's just not fair though, Reed. It's not fair. It's not fair. And I know that it's like what a what a tragic thing is that how how casually we accept, well, honey, life ain't fair. And how casually we accept yeah. that instead of saying, I know the giver and the maker of life. And I know that he loves you. And I know that there is there that he has given everything of himself to make a way for you out of this. That you just you do not have to be resigned to this this black spot right. that you've drawn. Yeah, yeah. The system. Yeah. yeah, Cabin in the Woods. Going back to Cabin in the Woods where just oh well, these four teenage these poor teenagers are just gonna have to be offered up to satisfy the gods. And it's like, no. Press the button. Purge that system. I love I love I, lo- I love that you're uh you're like life go to now, you know, it's like cabin in the woods. You know, like that is the, <laughs> that is the, any, any time the word system comes up, you're like cabin in the woods, cabin, cabin right. in the woods, cabin in the that's woods. That's it. It's cabin Somebody in the woods system. And I'm just like, cabin you know, in the woods, I, right, right. You're like I've made bigger jumps than this. <laughs> you know, <I> just, <laughs> it's true. Or, well, do you have any other thoughts? Uh, you know what? I, I, I I'm, I'm getting tired. <laughs> I have a multitude. No, I mean, I, I will end with this is that I think I think listeners will hopefully hear my heart that I know issues are complicated, but I think that there is something very simple at the heart and root of everything. And that is that we have been set before us life and death. And I think the gospel continually compels us to choose life. And if that life comes at the expense of others, then you should be very skeptical of the gospel that you have been listening to. If it comes at the at, at the at the cost of anybody else yes. other than yourself and Christ. Yes. And that'll, that'll preach. And I should be tempted to leave it there, but like you made the comment just a moment ago of issues are complicated, man. Sometimes I'm just not sure they're as complicated as we really want them to be, to be able to support and prop up our systems. Mm. I think, I think this, I, I, that, that is not meant to suggest all issues are not complicated. You know, anytime you speak in, in absolutes, you're going to find yourself in trouble quick. But I do think issues are less complicated than maybe we sometimes think they are. What is complicated is the relationship between what Jesus teaches and exemplifies and how we respond to it. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's complicated because of how I think it was Jr. just had some really great language. I hope he appreciates that we keep coming back to him. Um, he's <laughs> he's to. the he's the pod pastor. He's our pod pastor. He's our pod he's pastor. Our, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, he said the I think he said the the sin impulse is to keep, and the Christ impulse is to give away. Yeah. Yeah. What can I get out of this? Yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but that that kind of language really resonated with me. And I think that's where the complicated issue comes in is our impulse is to hold tight and to cling tight and to preserve and 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 maintain um, and to keep the lottery going so long as we're not the ones who draw the spot. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Anyway, we'll read Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Yeah. 70 years old, just as resonant now as it was then. We should write her That's a true. letter. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's it's kind of a it's kind of sad. She kind of she um 
from what I understand, had a a, a, a fruitful life, but uh, was very private and 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 died rather young, um, and in in rather poor health uh, for the latter part of her life, from what I understand. Wow, that's a bummer. Um, that's, a, that's a real sad note to end on. But you know what? Uh, at least it's not as sad as the ending of her story. <laughs> wow, that's true. That's true. That's true. That's very true. Because we are remote right now, and you can't like physically harm me. So I'm thankful for that much. Um, <laughs> I, I want to encourage listeners like this is easy. You can read, sent me a link. I'm sure you can Google Shirley Jackson, the lottery and there's it's public domain. You can easily find a copy of it. I want to encourage folks like uh, a lot of the movies we talk about and watch are going to be an hour and a half, two hours, sometimes more. This will take you 10 minutes. Yes. <laughs> it's, yes. It's a bathroom break, depending on your, your longevity. <laughs> um, you know, like it, and it's rich. And I would encourage you if you've listened to this conversation and never read it, Go check it out. Um, chime in on uh, Facebook or Twitter. You know, let us know what you thought about it. Let us know how some of what we talked about on this episode, you know, the systems and, and our allegiance or resistance to them, uh, how, how these ideas resonated with you. I think it's a fascinating piece of literature, and I think you guys would as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, as we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. So, yeah, stay tuned to hear our social media cues and hear how, uh, wow, my voice is going in real time. <laughs> you, poor, you poor guy. Yes, and I, I will, I'll take the mic from you, Reed, because that's what I do. And I'll say, everybody, thank you for being wonderful humans. And we enjoy your presence, your contribution, your listening, and we will see you next week. Bye, everybody. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. To continue this conversation, you can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God. You can visit us on Facebook to comment on one of our posts or post there yourself. You can follow Reed on Twitter at Reed Lackey. You can follow Nathan on Twitter at the Nathan Rouse. Visit morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com, all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. Wow. Woo! Woo! Man, I might get us into a little bit of hot water on that one. No, you won't.